Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. The Zaman Vase, the story of Commonwealth and Hall. On August 19, 1853, the San Francisco Bee published the tragic passing of illustrious English artist and renowned explorer Thomas H. Commonwealth. The end came swiftly and without complication for the renowned traveler. He was murdered in the lateness of the hour at the hands of two vagrants in the midst of a fouled-up robbery, while strolling by the painted harlots of Maiden Lane for no particular reason. Commonwealth was known for his expeditions to Mesoamerica with travel writer George Carter Hall and their discovery of the legendary Zaman vase, which has been heralded as one of the great findings of the 19th century. The riddle brought forth by its bizarre inscriptions, wrote popular archaeology critic and writer James J.J.W. Everett in his engrossing 1837 journal, poses a quandary so peculiar someone ought to pin the story of its unearthing. I would do it myself, I'm just, I'm just super swamped right now. In the 1820s, Commonwealth studied ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean, specifically the Phoenicians and Egyptians, and using watercolors, captured their magnificent monuments and forgotten remains. The beauty and scale attained by these primitive dog-faced pharaohs is remarkable. Commonwealth wrote in a letter to his beloved back in Yorkshire, My frame trembles in the presence of their great pyramids. These early renderings by the young artist were displayed inside London's acclaimed Royal Academy, next to J. John Blackburn's transcendent painting, A View of State Building with Crowd Outside. Commonwealth's admittance to the prominent gallery as an honorary member, although debated by the Institute's lesser academicians, elevated his status as a topographical artist within the archaeology establishment, which at that point in time was considered by most a fringe study, often forced to take a back seat to steam in the evolution of canning. The practices implemented by archaeologists of the day were crude and relied mainly on imagination. The Roman law of finders keepers was still in use and allowed for the employment of artistic licensing, a right bestowed onto the Westerner with the wealthiest investor and largest fanfare. In those days, archaeological pageantry was everything, and no artist of topographical tradition understood this better than painter Horace Devlin. A fierce rival of Commonwealth, Devlin was known for his flamboyant garbs and elaborate excursions, which comprehended an extravagant procession of mammoth beasts, magicians, sword jugglers, fire breathers, and regional dance groups. Unlike Commonwealth, Devlin's illustrations conveyed a less literal depiction of the sites he discovered, and instead offered the viewer a more emotional experience. He dubbed this style neo-anti-naturalism, and in an 1831 travel almanac, described it as sensory empathy. Devlin embellished the Carthaginian relics of modern-day Tunisia 
with vivid colors and discorded structures, while his travels to Palestine produced his famous paint-by-emotion system, which applied predetermined colors to specific feelings received during his study of the landscape. In 1833, while in London attending a rousing exhibition on Carpathian pottery, Commonwealth met accomplished American writer George Carter Hall. Hall was an affluent, eccentric figure from New York. In Europe, working on his great novel about a lost Mayan civilization he read about in the ruins of the Fertile Valley by José Luis Diego. Together, the two forewent the exhibition's licentious nightlife, which usually accompanied such an exposition, and instead spent the evening exchanging stories of perilous adventures and grand discoveries over a rejuvenating glass of absinthe inside the parlor room of Her Majesty's premier brothel, the Royal Petticoat, which was an open secret among England's aristocracy. Commonwealth was enthralled by Hull's second-hand accounts of the Mayan culture. He became obsessed with visiting Central America in hopes of reproducing their mythological ruins for all the world to see. Committing the overgrown remnants of the southern savages to paper for publication will surely permit my name to a level of recognition like no artist before me, while at the same instant besting that puffed-up tosser Devlin. Commonwealth wrote to a frequented Kyoto prostitute. My new traveling companion is a strange sort, and although his prose is as beautifully structured as his pentameter, I fear he may be queer in the head, as he espouses a rich profusion of sexual depravities, of which the seasoned author mentions habitually and quite boisterously in the most public of settings. Like his penchant for being lathered in mashed potatoes and flogged with a drumstick, as you know, I am a man of simple pleasures, and desire nothing more than the sensual application of your heavenly getta shoes pressed firmly into my scrotum. Commonwealth and Hull secured funding for their first expedition to Central America through the Council of the Royal Society of Antiquities, owing chiefly to a stimulating skit with props performed by the two explorers in ceremonial Mayan vestments. On August 3, 1835, Commonwealth and Hull set sail for British Honduras by way of New York for a traditional American dinner of pork and beans with ardent spirits and a spell of cholera. At last, they disembarked on the shores of present-day Belize, where they rendezvoused with local guide Godfrey Sebastian Carrera, a university-trained geographer who, for authenticity in the presence of foreigners, covered his clothes with dust went by the name Yama. Together, the small band of searchers trekked across the dense jungle floor of the Zaman Valley, snaking and cutting their way through the lush vegetation with hopes of locating the lost Maya civilization. And with any luck, its fabled capital, Zaman City, spoken of so majestically in the pages of Diego's records, which Hall read aloud to the party without interruption or dip in luster during their weary trudge through the hostile territory. He captivated the company with stories of maize deities and human sacrifices, as well as a rowdy lunar festival that was the must-make event every year. 
At the time, though, the whereabouts of this once-thriving metropolis were unknown, even by the area's indigenous peoples. But on August 22nd, after 19 days of charting the surrounding terrain, Commonwealth and Hull sighted the steppe pyramids of the lost city, towering over the forest canopy. Unfortunately, their arrival the following day was met with dismay when they discovered the site littered with scores of survey teams and archaeologists. And at the top of the 60-meter-high Great Serpent Pyramid, Horus Devlin, standing by the altar wearing a loincloth and vibrant headdress with pallid and easel surrounded by an extolling entourage. Commonwealth and Hall were devastated. Dejected, the party of would-be pioneers slinked off to a small, undisturbed patch of ground nestled at the site's perimeter, where Commonwealth passive-aggressively sketched a broken, discarded, preparatory sculpture of 7th-century King Pakal's second cousin, Paya, then found himself in a squabble with a member from another party over the volume of their humming, before hurling their trowel into the woods. Our journey into these dreadful wilds have been all for naught. Commonwealth painfully poured into a letter to an Eskimo call girl who offered him warmth during his travels through the northwest frontier. And the horror of my plight has been compounded by the presence of my deriding adversary and his ostentatious herd of simple-minded toadies. Not to mention his ghastly, almost shrill cackle that violates the senses and molests my nocturnal cognition. A correctness proven this very moment by his vulgar taunting, deafening from opposite the great plaza, frequently at length outside my tent. I pray the gods curse his talent or dispatch him with a large boulder while he relieves himself in the night. Oh, how my agitation would benefit from the warmth of your nasal caress of sweet and tender sensuality followed by you chipping away at my genitals encased in a block of ice. Yes, yes, let's make that happen. It is most agreeable. On the fifth week of their object, after days of mapping the site with detailed drawings of colossal pyramids and fascinating sculptures of bold relief, the party of Commonwealth and Hall uncovered a strange ceramic vase near the south Acropolis. It was adorned with the image of a bedded female figure and hieroglyphs unfamiliar to Hall and not yet deciphered by scholars of the day. Though upon closer examination, Hall was able to identify a single glyph from Diego's The Ruins of the Fertile Valley, a name, Lady Night Sky of Zemon, daughter of and sole heir to 8th century ruler Eagle Talon II one of the only Maya queens to rule during the late classic period, little was known of Lady Night Sky's reign. It was a rare find of untold significance. What epic tales from her brief time on the throne embellished this curious vase? What insights and beauty would its decoding reveal? Commonwealth and Hall knew its secrets would surpass any monetary value and given the right attention and marketing play, could net them a fortune and advance their station well beyond England's tiring gentry.
After their return, Hall abandoned his novel and with Commonwealth's illustrations of the perplexing vessel and imposing city that yielded it, published Perils and Discovery of the Maya Civilization and the Zaman Vase. With our fearful guide babbling in foreign tongue, we marched on through the heart of darkness and into the eye of terror, Hall wrote. We came upon the city, lost to time and reclaimed by the jungle, desolate, deserted, and decayed, intact of its spoils, which we would have brought back, but, you know, there was just so much. We knew we were the first civilized men to lay eyes on these majestic remains in centuries. Inside the queen's chamber, reposed atop a shrine of stone and strange symbols, sat the most unusual urn. It wasn't an urn at all, but a vase. The legendary vase of Zaman. Hall's book was an instant bestseller, filling readers with fascination and awe. Nevertheless, Commonwealth knew that stories and drawings of the vase printed in a book, as immaculately represented as they are, an assertion he made in his private journal before mailing it to the famous 19th century sailor Sengood, a deserter of the Royal Navy turned worldly seafarer of ill repute, as a love token after the two shared an amorous late-night tussle with paddles in the hold of the Magnificence, would never be as exhilarating for the public as gazing upon the real thing. So on the heels of the book's success, Commonwealth presented the council with a proposal to put on a grand exposition in London where the public could view the Zaman vase firsthand. The council relished the idea, so much so that they were already months into organizing such a showcase after being approached by another of their high-profile beneficiaries, Horace Devlin, who, known for having a flair for the dramatic, was present during the council's meeting with Commonwealth waiting patiently crouched behind a love seat. His reveal came with a poof of smoke that was followed by several open windows and a stern warning. Then, in a rare display of cordiality, the prominent combatants agreed to house their collections under the same roof and would entrust the public with deciding which exhibit filled them with more wonderment. The great exhibition of Mayan culture and antiquities was held in London's Palace Park Pleasure Garden in 1837, and continued to New York the following year due to popular demand. The lost Maya civilization had been placed back on the map. Devlin's abstract painting Maya Rage and Commonwealth's famous 1836 lithograph Stone Head Next to Crooked Tree astounded Europe and the rest of the Americas. But nothing astonished the public more than the mystery of the Zaman vase. Its ornate detailing and practical use as a vase dazzled the imagination and left onlookers mystified. Commonwealth had gotten the better of Devlin, who accepted defeat graciously with a congratulatory handshake given publicly at the top of the hour under the massive elm tree enclosed in the exhibition hall before frantically defacing a number of Commonwealth's works with engorged phalluses on his way out. Like a fever, Maya mania swept through all of Western civilization, 
Stores stock their shelves with anything and everything Maya. Clothes, headdresses, everyday items stamped with hieroglyphs, textiles, tools, even smoking pipes pressed with pyramids. Corn consumption in the West doubled. The public clamored for corn and savored its freshness with gusto and a lot of noise. Despite their enthusiasm, though, most were outspoken in their disdain for its appearance, and as a result, over time, modern agriculturalists, with the aid of ad agencies, would engineer a variety more pleasing to the eye. Tamales became a staple food in the southern United States and all along the eastern seaboard. The first salsa bar opened in London in 1837, and restaurants offered Mayan delicacies with a local twist. There was the Walker House, which delighted patrons with a popular spicy dish called the Queen's Dog Snout Mutton. Or the Turner House, known for their pock chop, a traditional Yucatan pork dish that they paired with cold tongue and caper sauce. The Mayan way of life was more prevalent than ever, and Commonwealth and Hall had become household names. During their pinnacle of fame, the duo led four more expeditions to Central America from 1838 to 1841, visiting over 50 different Mayan sites in total, and resulting in a series of top-selling books by Hall. Perils in Discovery of Maya Life, Perils in Discovery of Maya Afterlife, and Perils in Discovery of Maya Athletics, Volumes 1 and 2. They brought back with them weapons, pottery, even jewelry, but still the lure and mystique of the Zaman vase remained stronger than ever. Journalist Herbert Ralph Boone of the New York Review called it the Western Holy Grail, and archaeology humorist J.P. Daltrey iconically parodied the bewitching vase in Sutter's magazine with a glyph-inscribed chamber pot, an amusing lampoon deep with Scottish prejudices consistent with Daltrey's work. Since its journey across the Atlantic six years earlier, the Zaman vase had been examined by the world's top scholars and to no avail. Hall, however, labored restlessly for years in the study of his West End home trying to decipher the code himself. He toiled away night and day, moiling through libraries of codexes and suspending work only for food. Usually a sizable portion of liver goulash at the Royal Petticoat Restaurant followed by a baked bean bath with Madame Tory. All the while, Commonwealth triumphed in the midst of what British writer Cornelius Pennington referred to as the vase craze, and set out for a year-long tour on the lecture circuit, offering town halls and universities throughout Europe and North America insights and theories on the Zaman vase. Commonwealth indulged in the public's interest in his newfound star as he too found himself swept up in the sensationalism. So much to the degree that he took great liberties with the hypotheses he presented on stage, claiming in some cases that the vase was an ancient star map that led Lady Night Sky to the afterlife. On occasion, he insisted the vase contained powers of immortality which the queen used for the enjoyment of year-round flowers and sparkling water that never went flat. At a public event in Chicago, Commonwealth spoke of the vase as a portal to another dimension, then demonstrated by sticking his hand inside and dimming the lights in the room up and down rapidly, and afterward told tales of the vase's ability to hover 
inches off the table when nobody's looking. Commonwealth basked in the spotlight. I am intoxicated by my new position and the frenzy this mesmerizing treasure has ushered in, Commonwealth wrote to the legendary mistress of St. James Street in a letter congratulating her on her recent retirement. Their transfixed and spellbound faces are extraordinary and fill me with raptures so severe it rivals your exquisite thoroughness on the rack or the testicular delights brought on from the grasp of your miniature vice. Their gazes resemble those of an infant or a congregation of dullards. They grace my scene room backstage each night with lavish gifts and fragrant offerings. They cry out my name and trample one another to brush the hem of my garments as I enter my waiting coach in a scurry. It is with certainty they perceive me as omniscient and all-powerful. Commonwealth began living an openly garish and extravagant life, whose affairs littered the newspapers on a daily basis. He took to fashions made from the skins and feathers of exotic animals and reveled in the fare prepared from their offspring. In 1849, Commonwealth hosted the notorious Bransford Hall Menagerie Banquet of Curious Cuisines, featuring a menu of wild fowl and big game from foreign and faraway lands. The guest list was a medley of blue bloods, well-to-dos, and every whore in Whitechapel. During this time, Hall was making promising headway, cracking the basis code. Although I'm all but convinced my dear friend is of putrid mind as he has gone pitifully mad with fame, what with our vexing vessel and that foolish dinner of his, of which he boasted, the vase used to take me to these sorts of affairs, but tonight I take the vase, you know, which he said with a wink. I have reached an exciting and favorable development in my analysis. It appears several of the glyphs in question curiously represent sounds, of which I ascertain a number to be that of moaning, slurping, and shouts of ecstasy. Though I can't enumerate all the pictorial symbols in the moment, suffice it to say the characters are carnal in nature, with the occasional religious symbol for punctuation. By 1851, through his studies, Hall had successfully paved the way for the work of German librarian Heinrich Dorn, who established the Mayan numeral system in 1878, and by doing so, deciphered the code and solved the mystery of the legendary Zaman vase. It told of Lady Night Sky's thunderous libido and a wild roll in the hay, of which she had commemorated in brilliant polychromatic relief. After news of the vase's true meaning reached the rest of the world, Commonwealth's popularity plummeted and his reputation tarnished. He returned to painting, but without investors, was forced to fabricate distant and undiscovered regions. Like his 1852 rendering, The Ants of Antarctica, which depicted the icy continent as a white wasteland inhabited by giant ants, and after years of extravagant spending, Commonwealth's finances were severely depleted. He sailed to California and took up residence in San Francisco, where he earned money painting caricatures of the merchant seamen and gold miners landing in port. 
He walked the city in Spanish military regalia and offered directions to people that were already being helped. He frequented the parlor houses of the Tenderloin and the Lokis of Chinatown, where he exhausted his remaining funds one cent at a time, as those establishments offered the best drink and fare in town. An autopsy concluded that at the time of Commonwealth's untimely death, he was, as it was stated by San Francisco writer William Dale, riddled with enough syphilis and gonorrhea to take down the entire Royal Navy. Hall, however, lived out the majority of his days in England and was regarded as one of the central figures in the Western discovery of the Maya civilization and a pivotal part in the understanding of their writing system. He died peacefully during a month-long pleasure cruise along the African coast after developing botulism from dented tins of meat gravy ingested during foreplay. The Zaman vase remained in London under the ownership of the council and was placed on display inside the Royal Academy of Arts, where it remains today to serve as a lasting tribute to an advanced civilization, the men that rediscovered it, and a queen's unforgettable lay. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scoville. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.